Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the latest in the Mason Hayes and Curran quarterly series of financial regulatory webinars. I'm Liam Flynn. I'm co-head of financial regulation here at Mason Hayes, and together with my partners Sarah Clunan, Joe Connolly, and Peter Johnson, we're delighted to welcome you here to this latest in our series. Now, anybody joining from financial services will immediately have picked up on the searing heat reference of the title. Um, but for anyone from outside the sector, the purpose of today is to explore just how hot things could get for senior managers of financial firms under the government and Central Bank of Ireland's proposed uh, Individual Accountability Framework, or IAF, also known as SEER, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime. Now, senior managers in financial firms are not exactly popular figures in the media. Um, there's still not a lot of sympathy for the relaxation of the banker's pay cap. Uh, and there's still negative publicity associated with tracker mortgage investigations. We all know that. But financial services is a key driver of Ireland's economy, um, and it supports that tens of thousands of well-paid uh, and, and tax-paying jobs. So the practical application of financial regulation is a key factor in firms' decisions um, regarding inward investment. Are they going to set up here? Are they going to expand here? Or by contrast, are they going to reduce the scale of their operations here and look at other domiciles? And one issue that's certainly going to be front of mind for foreign firms who are considering Ireland as a location uh, for setting up or expanding is going to be the potential exposure of their senior executives to personal fines and personal sanctions uh, as a result of issues within his or her firm. There's been a lot of coverage by consultancies of implementation projects and the practicalities of implementing the IAFC regime within firms. There hasn't been much discussion so far about the impact of the new regime at a personal level. And that's our focus today. It's really to look at the personal impact and exposures for individuals. And to explore those issues, we're delighted to be joined um, by Chris Finney and by Davina Saint, our guest speakers. Uh, Chris is a solicitor and a partner with Fox Williams Financial Services Regulatory Practice based in London. Um, he's been advising on financial services regulation for more than 20 years and on the UK's uh, equivalent of IAFCR, the Senior Managers Certification Regime, SMCR, since it was introduced in 2016. And he's going to discuss the personal impacts on UK senior managers of the SMCR, which he's seen at first hand. Um, and then Chris is going to hand over to Davina Saint. Um, Davina will be well known to lots of you. She's originally from Wales. Uh, she was general counsel of BNP Paribas here in Ireland for 19 years and subsequently head of the Dublin branch of BNP Paribas for security services in Ireland. She's now a full-time independent director sitting on a mix of state boards, fund boards and financial services organisations. And she'll give her thoughts from an Irish market perspective on some of the issues that Chris will discuss. And then our guest speakers will join my partners and I in a panel discussion to explore some of those themes further. So without further ado, over to you, Chris. Liam, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, and thank you for uh, asking me to uh, join you. Um, I thought I'd just spend a few minutes talking a little bit about the uh, senior managers regime in the UK, just a, a quick um, overview, um, and then talk about um, some of the practical consequences of that since it was introduced into the UK in 2016. 
Um, it, it was first introduced into the UK for banks in 2016, um, and by uh, 2019, it had been expanded to all of the financial services businesses authorised in the UK. Um, there are now six versions of it, um, different versions for different types of businesses and different sizes of business, um, but, but not a version that applies to payments businesses or electronic money businesses um, or appointed representatives. It, it, it's, it comes in layers. So um, just as we had before, there's a senior management function holder layer, mainly directors, compliance officers, money laundering reporting officers. And just as before, they have to be pre-approved by the regulators before they can take up and start performing their functions. There are eight certified function employee categories. Or one of those, you have to have a certificate from your employer confirming that you're a person. So that you can perform your job. Um, and that certificate can't last any more than a year, so it has to be renewed at least once a year. Um, regulators have introduced some conduct rules. The, the conduct rules are very similar to the rules that we had before the senior managers regime was introduced, um, but um, they've ex they've been expanded, so they apply to everybody in a business, not just to um the senior management people not just those who've been pre-approved by the regulator although there are some rules that only apply to senior managers um, and then we have three other things and it's these three other things that have caused um the most difficulty in practice statements of responsibility and prescribed responsibilities so the regulators produced a list of prescribed responsibilities that have to be um, allocated to senior managers and those prescribed responsibilities have to be recorded in individual statements of responsibility so that it's absolutely clear who is responsible for what and, and then reg regulatory references so um before the senior managers regime was introduced in the uk it was pretty common to ask for a reference and, and to give one but the reference wouldn't say any more than joined on this day left on that day job title this salary that um and nobody would say anything else for fear of being sued six ways from sunday um, since the senior managers regime was introduced, um, firms that want to recruit somebody into a senior management function or a certified function must ask a series of prescribed questions um, of every employer over the last six years. And regulated firms have an obligation to answer those prescribed questions. Um, so that's generating some um, challenge as well. It's quite interesting then. That it, at least in theory, it sounds as if this ought to work um, really, really well. Um, and in many respects, it does, um, but it's generated some challenges. Um, the first, perhaps, was the, um, the sheer cost and complexity of introducing the new regime or preparing for it. An awful lot of businesses spent very large amounts of money, um, and the larger businesses had significant teams of people working on and preparing for this regime, um, that sort of work would include documenting um, all of the internal systems and controls that would be relevant, um, documenting the statements of responsibility, the prescribed responsibilities. Quite a lot of time was also spent properly categorizing the people in the business so that they also fell into the right functions. Um, it's interesting when you talk to people in the market about what the benefit of that was. An awful lot will say actually little or none because we run the business in that way anyway, but we had to spend an awful lot of money documenting it in this particular way. 
smaller businesses, perhaps less well organized businesses got some benefit from that. Um, but many of them, I think, would say, well, the cost exceeded the benefit. Um, for maybe two or three years after the regime was introduced, um, firms um, also incurred some reasonably significant costs going through the annual certification process and, and getting used to dealing with um, requests for references and then how to respond if they got a reference in that wasn't, if you'd like, completely clean. Um, but mostly that's receded now and the, and the system is, I think, working reasonably well. At the beginning, there was a fair amount of um, talk in the market about whether or not anybody should have a pay rise. Uh, people talked about um, being paid danger money because of the um, perception that there would be a significant increase in their individual responsibilities. Um, as, as, at least as far as we can tell, no firm was willing to pay that danger money. Everybody carried on doing that everybody went into the new regime and did what was expected of them without getting a pay rise and, and the market line and the regulators line was this is what you should have been doing anyway so um, we're not going to pay you more to do it having consistently paid you apparently not to do it uh, for some time and, and that held well um, until actually people started to move and then what we've seen um, fairly typically is that is that the salaries for some jobs, in particular compliance officers and some directors, um, have increased significantly as people, as people have moved around the market. Firms have had to pay more and more to attract those people. Um, we're now in a world where um, individuals are starting to see, the, at least on a personal level, um, this system generates some significant unfairness, risk or prejudice. Um, ju just for individuals and, and that's happening in a number of ways and for a number of reasons. Um, one is that in 2018, um, at, 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 while the Me Too movement was um, often on the front pages, the FCA in particular said that it would use the senior managers regime to drive out um, bullying, harassment, misogynistic behaviour um, from the financial services industry. And it would do that by arguing that people who behaved in those ways um, didn't have integrity. Um, and it would do it as well by saying that if a firm had a system or a culture that allowed that, well, that firm didn't have um, adequate um, non-financial resources. Um, and so the regulators would tackle both the firms and the individuals uh, where those problems existed. Um, the regulators have got into some significant difficulty with that, um, often because they've overstretched themselves by saying that something is or goes to integrity and then found that um, actually the, the, the current law in the UK doesn't support them. And they've given very little guidance on what they mean by these things. So, so that's been a significant challenge. Um, a second layer of challenges that firms often feel themselves under a significant amount of pressure if something happens within their business. So where before they would have responded if something happened and they thought that it warranted a response, it might have been an internal investigation, maybe some disciplinary action, perhaps um, somebody being fired. Um, well, they're finding it more difficult now to work out how to deal with that and, and where to draw the line some firms have got into difficulty in the courts because um, they've been so concerned about what the regulator might do to the firm if they weren't aggressive enough 
um, that they've terminated and, the, and those terminations have um, turned out to be unlawful. So there's been some significant damages to pay. Um, and then at an individual level, apart from the, the individuals in the businesses that are making those sorts of decisions and then getting themselves into hot water sometimes, um, we've seen a decent number of um, senior people in particular who are trying to move from one employer to another um, in circumstances where they don't have a completely clean reference and, and finding it very, very difficult to move. Um, and in particular, the risk crystallizes around the point where you say, actually, it, it's great to have this job offer, thank you. Um, before we go any further, I ought to just tell you about this or that um, so that you know about it before the regulatory reference arrives and you therefore know what my side of the story is. Um, and in some cases, of course, we find that offers are quickly withdrawn um, when those things are mentioned um, or um, shoulders are shrugged. And it's quite interesting because one of the things is, well, some firms will say, this is terrible. Um, we're going to terminate your employment. And other firms will say, we don't know what all the fuss was about. Um, and we'll ask the regulator to approve you um, because we think you're fit and proper and the regulator's gone ahead and approved. Um, so there's quite a lot, I think, of um, unevenness across the market in the way in which different firms are responding to issues um, and the ways in which those problems are manifesting themselves for individuals as they've tried to change jobs. One of, one of the consequences of that is that um, what we quite often see then is that for a year or two or three after something has happened, um, people stay in a job. Um, where otherwise they might have moved on for, for the development of their career um, or for other reasons. Um, and, and even those sorts of things are starting to cause some problems. Um, so that, that's all I wanted to say just for the moment then about the UK experience and, and the practical consequences of uh, our version. And Davina is going to give us some thoughts now, I think, on um, the, the proposals that will be introduced in Ireland. Davina. Thanks, Chris. Uh, and really interesting points that you've made there. Um, I think really what I was going to try and talk about was what, oh, my video has stopped. There you go. There we are. Um, what, what I feel about the changes, the proposals from the position of being an independent director, um, thoughts on what you've observed, Chris, in terms of the developments in the UK, and just looking at Ireland generally, how I feel these changes might be implemented and how they might uh, affect us going forwards. Um, I think it's really interesting to talk about what, what it all boils down to, which is responsibilities. And uh, for me as an independent director, I think that the statements of responsibilities are going to be where this all really shakes down. They're going to be really important. And why do I say that as a director? Because these statements of responsibilities are going to have to feed up into management responsibility maps. And the danger for governance and for the governance framework uh, in a board situation is where you have the gaps between these uh, statements of responsibilities and how they map up into the management. It's where we find uh, that there might be resistance. You might have people who just go into silos. And, and I think that this is probably the most fundamental building block of what we're gonna have to look at in Ireland. 
Um, some of the dangers that we, we've been talking about a lot in the implementation, it, it's not just the fact that, as Chris was saying, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying, we'll do consulting and we'll help you make your maps and we'll help you do your statements of responsibilities. I think that we have to really get back to basics and get really into the first line. Uh, the business themselves are going to have to really believe that they have to map these responsibilities. We're going to have to have really good communication across businesses to avoid silos, to avoid a challenge around the taking of responsibilities and to agree where responsibilities really lie. Um, and so, again, I think developing the right culture right from the very beginning and right from the first line through the second and third lines of defense is going to be the really big challenge because a consultant doesn't know what your business is in the way that a person who really is in the business knows what it is and I think that uh, getting HR engaged with business people is always really difficult um, you're going to have to have the right kind of people to do that and I think that's one of the biggest impediments we have it's just having the right people to organize and record what it is and allocate the responsibilities. Um, challenges, I think, are going to be around keeping diversity, keeping us away from groupthink, because I think there's just a temptation to cookie cut the same kind of people all over this, people who understand about mapping and responsibilities, rather than really engaging in the reality of the businesses and understanding the real risks. Um, so I'd be very keen that people really engage in the process rather than the theory. Um, real transparency, good governance. I mean, we all say this is what we should have been doing all along, but I think that this takes it to another level. And I think that the challenge is to find, uh, to find real genuine usefulness in the process. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, we can talk about whether, whether this changes the way we do things. Does it stop us looking for proper diversity? Do we have to completely rethink the concept of DNO and whistleblowing and, you know, avoiding the constant papering of decision making challenge for challenge sake? I think that if we just start with the foundation stones and really think about making a good job of governance that hangs together, um, it would be a really good place to start. Um, I think that we could probably we could speak for a long time about how how we train people to do this and maybe we'll have a few words on the value of training Liam as we, as we go along um, but really I think that you know we know this is coming um, I think we have to find a way of welcoming it and turning it to good use and um, driving consensus about its value rather than just group think consensus thinking and not losing our diversity so um liam i'm gonna uh hand over to you again now and um we can maybe open up to the larger discussion because i know there's some great points in the wider group there that's great thank you both chris and davina that's that's terrific scene setting um just to to move into the panel discussion so uh, we're going to be joined um 
Chris and Davina now are going to be joined by my partners, um, Sarah Clunan, who uh, practices in the financial regulatory team, and Peter Johnson uh, in the commercial litigation team with a particular um, focus and specialism in financial services, and Joe Connolly, um, who's one of the co-heads of our employment team, um, and also uh, has a very deep practice with regulated financial firms advising them on their employment uh, challenges. So, first of all, I guess I was struck, Chris, by one of the points that that you raised about um, the, the the impact for firms being feeling that they're under greater pressure to investigate issues, um, to, if you like, pursue um, zealously issues of suspected misconduct because they've got kind of one eye to the regulator or the potential regulatory risk and, and, and the possibility that that could drive an increase in employment-related litigation, and you mentioned it had in the UK. Can you speak maybe a bit more about that? And then, Ger, maybe you give us some of your thoughts um, from, from the Irish perspective um, uh, 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 on the on the prospects for increased employment litigation. And, and, and then, Peter, um, so we kind of do it three. So Chris first, and then a segue into Ger and, and Peter to, to comment from the Irish perspective on the litigation risks. Sure, thank you. So. Um... I think probably from a UK perspective, um, two things have been happening in tandem. Um, the first is that for quite a long time, the regulator has been focusing on individual responsibility. And this regime is in particular about individual responsibility and accountability. So, so if something goes wrong, who in particular is responsible? Who are we going to take a stick to if, if a stick has to be taken? Um, and what happens then within a firm is that... Um, some people think, ah, OK, so this has happened within my division, my department, whatever it is. Um, the regulator is going to be looking to me in particular to make sure that I respond in, a, in the right way to this. Um, where perhaps in the past I might have tried to take a more measured approach, a more balanced approach, especially if it's somebody that's been with the business a long time, um, who's always done the right thing and, and, and been a great employee, but something has happened and, and, and maybe whatever it is, or perhaps you've got some sympathy with whatever it is or whatever. So in the past, you might have been a little bit more measured or restrained in your response. Um, now they feel actually I'm at risk if I don't do this, so I better push much harder than I would otherwise have done. Um, that's one thing. The second thing um, is that um, where in the past it would have been very common in the UK to say, um, we, we think we need to part ways um, we'll agree a regulatory reference with we'll, we'll agree a reference with you and we'll write a check um, and we could agree a reference um, which would allow somebody to go and find another job without too much difficulty and give them enough money to feel okay about doing that um, well now we can't agree a regulatory reference anymore um, and so one of the consequences of that is that people who feel they've been unfairly treated or people who feel that allegations have been made that just aren't right are much, much more inclined now to fight back than they ever were before. And, and that's one of the reasons why then both the, both the regulators have got themselves into the courts and employers have found themselves in court as well because people can't accept what they might otherwise have accepted. Jerry, do you want to come in on that? Sorry, yeah, I think there's probably two points is that firstly, as a, as, as a kind of a society, we've abandoned the concept of reference, the, the, the big glowing reference of Jar is very trustworthy, and I will, you know, uh, honest and where 10 years ago, we had this really glowing references that were really more a personal statement as opposed to a professional statement. And 
to avoid this issue, we, we all went with the statement of service, as Chris mentioned, just uh, when a person worked for you and what they did. And the best employee who left go on and the worst employee both got the same. And it and companies uh, embedded a culture of that is our policy when contacted. Um, and it has it has served lots of companies very well. The problem now is, of course, you're being asked to do something else is you're asked to make up a, a commentary on their professional standing. Um, and it's going to be uh, interesting. And, and I think we're going to have to learn and, and be careful about the wording that we are going to use in these. And we can't be blasé in relation to giving these regulatory references. And there's going to be, you can see it coming. You can see it's called a regulatory reference. And therefore, will it be about the person's professional capacity and it's interesting Chris's take on that the issue is about trying to use it for like me too and kind of you want to call it the more softer skills about bullying and uh, the person's management skills and just general behavior that the, the toolkit really didn't suit it in the UK for what its purposes were. The second point just in terms of investigations and investigations is very uh, it's probably in the last number of years where a lot of employees have focused on and it's very simple because unlike in the UK, in Ireland, you have the constitutional right to fair procedures and natural justice. And it's such a widely misinterpreted term, but it really just simply means, do you know the allegations that are being put against you? And are you given an, given an opportunity to respond to those allegations? And it could get quite clumsy where you have a situation where hypothetically you're being, the, the company is being kind of encouraged to bring uh, an investigation or look at issues by being a regulator or a third party. Um, and the question is always going to be is, who is making the allegations? And who is the, because, and who is going to set the allegations? Is it going to be the company setting the allegations? And that's why so many employment cases end up in the courts at investigation stages rather than at a disciplinary stage, because you're trying to protect your right to your good name. And if there, there's, extension of laws in the last few years into like defamation by innuendo in that even the concept of me being put through some sort of these covert investigations can damage my good name. So I think we're, you know, we'll have to learn from the UK experience. We'll have to learn how to write references again, which will be something new for a lot of people. But equally, there will be challenges at a very preliminary stage because in Ireland we do it anyway, but the temptation to uh, stop an investigation prior to action getting you know launched will always be there because it's the best way to protect your 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 probably your professional standing. I, I, I'm going to uh, um, come back to that point actually around regulatory references, but first I want to go to Peter. Um, Peter, um, all of this is going to drive, you know, clearly it's going to embroil individuals in potentially in in enforcement action potentially in litigation that they would not have been embroiled in before. So from, from the point of view of the individuals, you work a lot with, with individuals who are um, somehow involved, whether it be as witnesses, you know, occasionally even, even directly um, uh, 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 being investigated um, in central bank investigations. Um, what kind of support do you think firms are going to need to provide to those individuals going forward? What can what will firms be expected to do to, to protect to protect their people? Yeah, thanks, Liam, and morning, everyone. I suppose there's an element of some of this is new and some of it isn't. I suppose what's new is that there's going to be more of it. 
But, you know, as a litigator, you, you hope for the best, but you plan for the worst. So you always have that mindset. So from the individual's perspective, and indeed the firm in assisting the individual, you know, there's some sort of administrative or sort of backroom stuff that can be done in advance before there's ever a whiff of investigation. Because once that investigation measure lands, you're on a clock. The timelines, unfortunately, are usually quite tight and when you have to respond. And you don't want to have to be dealing with certain issues as an individual or as a firm that could have been dealt with in advance so that you're set up and you don't have to deal with them then when they arise in the course of the investigation. And really, from an individual's perspective, what we would see as sort of the, the, the main issue is the individual will say, well, look, do I need legal representation? And if I do need legal representation, who's going to pay for that? And, you know, DNO policies now are really going to come into focus here in the new regime, particularly where individuals that would have been captured under the current regime that remit is going to broaden now beyond those concerned with the management of the firm and the question has to be asked and you should you know go check your policies now what's captured by that so that the, these individuals in the future you know are captured or at least understand if they are captured or not the other issue that can arise and can lead to you know attention which can you know at least be considered in advance of any such investigation is you know different legal advice um, should law firms, should separate law firms be engaged for the firm and for the individual? And that should be set up in advance so that when again an investigation letter lands, you already have considered those issues internally and you know then how you're going to deal with them. And if you do those couple of steps, I think that at least, you know, soften the blow a little bit from the individual's perspective, that at least you know that your firm has your back to an extent or that there's a framework in place to support you as you go through that process then going forward. Thanks, Peter. Um, Davina, can I, I saw you nodding when Peter was saying about the importance of DNO insurance. So obviously you're 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 an you're an INET and, and quite a number of the people here in the uh, in our audience will be will be directors of firms, whether they be independent directors or group directors or whatever. I mean, what's your take on these these issues of the support? I mean, what kind of support are you going to be looking for? Do you think other um, independent directors are going to be looking for going forward? Yeah, Liam. You know, there is there's only so much support you can give to somebody who hasn't done the right thing in the beginning. Um, you know, reliance on DNO insurance is something that we've been training directors for years to understand really only helps you cover defense costs if you didn't do the thing that you were accused of doing. So I, I've always, you know, okay, it's very important that we revisit DNO policies and we make sure that they are covering. Uh, you know, the new standards that need to be added. We need to make sure that they are rounded and, and give the right protections to people. But I think that, you know, this is just a back to basics situation here where uh, reliance on insurance is, is, is not the way in any event. Um, so it's, it's back to the building blocks. But I, I do think that um, we need to, we, we need to do a good job of making sure the procedures, the insurance, everything's in place, but reliance on it won't help you, Liam. <laughs> well, as, as, as lawyers, we know that very well. <laughs> uh, Chris and Joe, back to, to, to you guys. Can I just, on one aspect of the regulatory references um, point, um, it's been suggested, and, and Chris, maybe you'd comment on the UK experience, and, and Joe, maybe then we, we, we take your thoughts on 
on it from an Irish perspective. Um, it's been suggested that the process of requiring regulatory references um, has made it more difficult, um, or in some cases impossible, um, in the UK for people to agree, you know, the classic voluntary severance, and I go quietly and, 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 and I move on to, to my next role. The regulators will probably say, oh, that's exactly what we want because that's the bad apple rolling and we don't want the bad apple rolling. But can you maybe um, give us some sense of, of the practicalities of that in the UK and, 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 and some of the hard cases it's created? And then Joe, maybe you want to come in on that one then as well. Sure. So, 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 so you're right, Liam. The first, the first thing is that um, the the rules, the new rules, um, expressly prohibit the agreeing of regulatory references. Um, some employees will say, um, "Look, I'll be more inclined to go quietly if you tell me what you would say if you were asked for a regulatory reference today." And I can see that. And um, I recognise, of course, that you can't bind yourself to it, but at least I can see your current thinking. Um, and I can perhaps have a reasonable expectation that unless you find out something else, this is what you'll also say in the future. Um, and, and practically speaking, that's true, because what tends to happen is that you have your investigation, you make your decisions, um, nothing happens, memories fade. And if the regulatory reference request comes in, you look at the file and there's what you said last time, so you say it again. There's, nobody's got the time or the memory or whatever to, to, to rethink what they're going to say. Um, so that's beginning to become a practical way of overcoming that sometimes um it, it doesn't always work partly because um well some people i think just don't think to ask for that um but also some firms are reluctant even to offer that um the other is that um not only is it prohibited to agree a regulatory reference and then repeat it but if something new comes up having given one regulatory reference the firm has an obligation to update the reference so um we might do our investigation reach of you say this is what we would say if we were asked today but if something new comes up and we've actually given that reference to the new employer or the employer after that um we have to almost follow that person around the market and update their, their current employer on, on the new results, if you like. So um, we would have to say to the to the latest employer, when we gave you a reference, we said these things, we now know this. And if you asked us today, this is what we would say instead. Um, and, and that obviously causes a fair amount of angst. Um, first of all, because well, before I say anything to your new employer, I'm going to talk to you to see what you say about it. And that's a terrible shock. Um, last employer reaching into current employer and taking the the tree um and then of course um when it is said to the new employer um that that causes a great deal of angst as well because new employers wondering what they've missed and what, what their obligations are and whether they might um now need to to take action themselves or, or even terminate and often then there's a we better report what will the regulators think of us because we didn't find out about this sort of thing when we were hiring um so um it generates a lot of angst. The firms that deal with all of these things the best, um, both in the preparation and the reference giving and the investigations, all of it, are the ones who have um, HR and compliance working together closely within the business. Um, and often they're the firms that um, prepare for this regime doing that first and, and only bring in a consultant or a lawyer firm if they need some extra capacity or they've got a particular challenge to deal with. 
It's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I am not an advocate of, um, it, it, it sounds a bit odd actually for a lawyer, but I'm actually not an advocate of law firms, um, you know, pushing, uh, being involved very closely in implementation projects within firms. I think it has to be driven from inside the business because it has to fit, it has to, you know, Davina said, it's about documenting what you should be doing already. If you're not doing it, you need to be figuring out how you should go about doing it. And it needs to be something that works within your own culture. There's no point in an external firm coming and saying, well, here's a system, buy this system, you know, and run it. Jared, it's going to be a big culture change, um, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the, the typical departure of the senior executive in financial services nowadays in, in Ireland is an agreed departure, agreed exit. Um, and, and, and central bank is notified, or yes, contract terminated by agreement, and and person moves on. It's we were having this discussion this morning as a as a as a team, and we were we we're wondering how many severance agreements is done in Ireland on a yearly basis, and everyone estimated north of ten thousand. So it is it is the way of and even we did we read even as a team we would probably do four hundred a year. So that's just one law firm. Uh, do north of 400 severance agreements. So it is the Irish way, and sorry, it's the common law way of solving the problem. You don't give the vote of confidence to your, your, your Man United manager. He just goes and, and, and the compromise is reached because litigation is expensive it's, it, uh, and you, you always get to the same point of a payment or some sort and the person goes and you want a quick turnaround. Um, I think what we'll end up seeing is kind of severance agreements being, I think, becoming more more you know, because the statement of service is so freely given now, we don't really concentrate that much on the reference part. But I think what you will have is people trying to, particularly if you're representing employees, weave in kind of confirmations that as of today, to the best of the employer's knowledge, that there is nothing that would ever maybe be, be, be deemed as negative, of course, but you can't agree these things. So then there might be a next step of saying, if you discover anything, you will tell me first rather than, because we see this sometimes with tax liabilities. If the revenue ever come back in relation to a, 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 an issue in a severance agreement, that the employee gets an opportunity to challenge it first become, before it becomes a wider a wider thing. But um, you know, it's going to be interesting if that if if a negative regulatory references results in either determination of a future something that happened four years ago is now has reached into your new employer. And you've been with that person four years and you have absolutely been uh, deemed to be a super employee. And now you're, you might actually, it might jeopardize your position within the, the new employer. How is that going to play out in terms of if you're ultimately dismissed by your new employer for nothing that you did with them, but for something you did in your prior life? Um, and how does that play out? And it will be something new that, that, the Irish courts may the first time ever it might have to get look at things and go the if you want to call it the the regulations are sorry the, the legislation it's creating this linkage of your employment career as opposed to very individual he was good in Mason Hayes he was bad in this sort of you know you have to be and I see the merit in it because as you said it wants to flush out bad people so they can't hide uh, by moving but it's I think it's going to make severance agreements more difficult to negotiate and it probably places a value on references that doesn't exist as of today and a monetary value so you might pay actually less severance in return for 
but it would be uh, not an agreed, but a, a kind of a position on a regulatory reference. Mm -hmm. uh, going uh, so we've talked about um, the, the the potential personal impacts on individuals in terms of their employment relationships, in terms of moving careers, the impact of regulatory references, uh, potential um, greater exposure to internal investigations. Talked a bit about protecting individuals and how you know, the, the limited extent that that can be done. Um, one of the things also that that uh, you know I picked up from from you, Chris, and and from you, Davina, um, is the potential impact on individuals' behaviour. Now, obviously, the purpose of this regime is to change people's behaviours because otherwise, why would you do it if everything was if everybody was doing exactly what they should be doing, um, then there'd be no need for it. Um, but you know, how, do, how you know, is there a concern? And maybe Davina, you, know, you focus very much. We we'll go to you first. You focus very much on clarity of implementation and the process, and making sure that um, the statements of responsibility were clearly agreed, and that the regime was embedded from the very beginning and from the top down. Um, do you have any concerns about? Um, negative cultural impacts on financial firms, you know, a, a great a, a reduction in dynamism and entrepreneurship and anything yeah. along those lines. It's interesting, Liam, because I think, well, we're all going to spend an awful lot of time on this process. Um, there are concerns that you end up with different types of minute taking where everybody wants to have their challenge recorded. You end up with these verbatim iterative minutes that go on and on with everybody expressing their concerns. Um, we're, we're, we're changing, we're, we seem to be moving away from the board collective, as in the board considers something and then as a collective they decide and they move on. Um, and I don't really know how that's going to play out. And I do think that it does create this tension between uh, constantly recording what, what everybody is thinking and saying, and it's the minutes, the papering, the procedures, the decisions, the updating. So I, I think if people do it well, then maybe you can have a proportionate response to all of that, you know, if it, if it works well. I think that where people see gaps between personal responsibility statements and the kind of management statements, that's where you're going to find people trying to wallpaper these gaps with constant uh, recording of decisions. Um, I do think that we, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that boards are there to look forwards, to look into the future, to look at something that's bigger than just governance. We're looking at strategy. We're looking at trying to keep businesses up, moving, making progress. And so I, I'd, be, I'd be concerned that we don't spend all of our time on the regulatory framework and forget about actually moving forwards as well. So I think it's about allocating the right amount of time for the hygiene factors that need to be dealt with here and trying to balance it with a proper proportionate response. And I think it just goes back to maybe having it working right from the bottom of the organization. If everybody does what they're meant to do in their personal responsibility statements and it all feeds up, it should just work and allow the board to have that freedom to be working on strategy and forward looking. Um, that's the theory anyway. 
That's great. Um, Sarah, to bring you in here. So, and Davina's touched on this in terms of the level of resource that regulated firms are committing um, to the maintenance of the regulatory relationship and to compliance with regulatory obligations. You're working a lot with firms that are spending a lot of time and resource on governance right now, aren't you? So how do you think that the new regime will impact on that balance? Yeah, I think, you know, like Davina said, outside of the policies and procedures, you know, this is going to be a key consideration going forward. Um, and it's not that the the concept of governance or culture risk are you know, new things that firms have been thinking about. They've been thinking about this for a long time. And indeed, I suppose we've seen it just in practice with clients. You know, there has been that increased focus in those areas, probably driven mostly by the central bank's interest, obviously, and concern around those areas. And then a reg regime like this coming in is obviously just going to increase that focus. Um, resources are definitely going, I think, to be obviously initially focused on the initial papering exercise around getting your policies and procedures up to place and adapting your governance framework for day one. Um, I, I think it's important that firms don't forget this isn't a check, you know, tick the box exercise. Obviously, you have to have that stuff in place by day one, but the resources are still going to have to be available going forward. You know, there is going to be a monitoring of the responsibility maps and making sure that they're still fit for purpose and that everyone has been clearly communicated with and there's no ambiguity as to what they're expected to do. I think that communication here is really going to be key. Um, I think Chris already picked up on it as well. There's not, there's not going to be any silos here. We, we need to be more holistic in the view that you know, there's a number of different stakeholders within a firm that have to buy into this. So that obviously your compliance unit, your legal function, HR, I think Davina mentioned, have to be very deeply involved at the outset and going forward. And similarly, your three lines of defense. Like Davina said, I think at the very outset, no one knows the business better than the people that are in there on the ground doing the day to day work. And, you know, while an in, the input from a consultant is important in some instances, it, it's not going to be a way of ensuring full compliance and buy in by all of the stakeholders. Um, I suppose just to to touch on, we've touched on a lot of the key things that need to be considered, but some additional things I was thinking of just through prep on this from a practical perspective is, you know, we mentioned consultants, but I do think probably on the lead, you know, in the lead up to the regime kicking in, you may see requests from individuals and senior managers for health checks being carried out by maybe third party service providers, just to ensure the basics are there and they're right. And this might look at the three lines of defense, et cetera. And that might be used as a bit of a springboard for future decision making going forward. And, you know, the confidence that the individuals would have that, you know, the basics are being covered by the firms that they're engaging with. Um, and I suppose outside and again, Davina, you touched on this and this is another resource. It kind of feeds into the resource point as well is training. And I think, you know, firms, depending on who you're looking at, have varying levels of maturity when it comes to training frameworks. And I, I don't mean, you know, your annual AML training or certainly say the SEER training that I think you'd have to ensure people have on an annual basis to make sure they don't forget what they're meant to be doing. Um, but more bespoke um, training in light of the particular firm in question and, you know, the, the support that that training can provide to the individuals that are deemed the decision making um, individuals. You know, we all know regulation is fast paced and things change really quickly and trying to keep up with, with it is a challenge for everyone. Um, but it's going to, I think, going to be a particular focus of those people that fall within this regime and are, are making the decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Thanks, Sarah. And um, we've got some 
terrific questions um, that people are raising here. Um, one that I'd, I'd like to take, and I'd like to, to, to maybe ask Chris and, and Peter and Davina to come in on it. Um, the, the question here, um, it says probably for Chris, but I'm actually going to ask that, that Peter and Davina comment on it too. Chris, are you seeing firms in the UK willing to challenge ultraviaries or badly grounded acts of regulators? And that's very rare in this jurisdiction, just by way of background, where are individuals effectively being sacrificed to avoid even potential conflict with the regulator, very emotive language there. Uh, Chris, maybe you give us the UK perspective and then Peter and Davina, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on, on that. Um, so um, it's a really interesting question. We, there, there aren't very many cases where the regulator is taking action um, and, and the action has been completed. So we know what's actually happened, if you like, what the end result was um, as a result of these new rules. Um, our firm's been advising on quite a number where they're still making their way through the process. So we don't know what the end result will be. Um, when the regulator um, takes action against a firm, it's pretty rare for anybody to argue that it, there's ultraviaries. Um, and there's a significant amount of pressure because the result of an adverse finding tends to be a fine um, to settle early if you can, because there's a significant discount for settling early. Um, very often, it, it, the dispute between the regulator and the firm comes down to what's the evidence, what does it really show us, what, what does it... Um, where does it take us um, and have the rules really been breached or not um, so the focus tends to be there there's a small number of cases where the regulators take an action against individuals um, and um, in, 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 in a material number of those where um, it's made its way all the way through the process the regulators lost um, and that's tended to be because they've overreached themselves um, on um, the meaning of integrity and whether what's happened really goes to integrity in, in a relevant professional context, um, or in some cases, actually, because they've got into difficulty with their own internal processes and their own evidence trail. Um, so they've they've come to court, if you like, without really having a properly prepared case and then got into difficulty. Um, there's a decent number of individuals then who um, have had their careers trashed. Um, by regulators taking action against them, where, where the regulators eventually lost. Um, but in the meantime, of course, um, the, the names of those individuals and the, re the regulators' allegations are well known in the market. Um, so that's, that must have been quite devastating for those individuals um, and, and very difficult for them to fund their own defences. Peter, do you want to come in on this in terms of the Irish culture of, yeah. of, of sanctions enforcement? I suppose there's very little um, sanctions against individuals to date, primarily because the way in which the investigation process works is that the CBI has to go against the firm first and then move to the individual. So there's not really much, ex too much experience to sort of glean from in terms of, I think the question was going to whether firms will just effectively burn their employees to keep a good relationship with their regulator. So there's not much uh, empirical data to give you a sense of where that's going to go. Um, I suspect the challenge, I suppose, or the, the contrary to that question is that if firms take that position with one particular individual, it's not a good look for that firm because the other individuals within the business will see that that's how they've treated it. And that's not going to work going forward, just as a, you know, from a, from a business perspective. And the other risk as well is that 
you know, these things typically don't happen in isolation. So depending on what the allegation is as against the individual, the firm may become embroiled whether it likes it or not. So it's never so clear cut. So I think the, the answer to the question is it's a possibility, but I think in the medium term, it's not the way the firm should be trying to approach things because it's going to come back to bite them. Yeah, and, and I, would, yeah, yeah. I would just add, I mean, you'd, you'd like to believe that a regulator would know or would sense that someone was just being sacrificed. And you'd like to believe that the regulatory relationship was able to detect that. Um, and, you know, I think exactly as Peter says, some an action like that really only leads to the firm becoming embroiled. Yeah. That's interesting. If I might just do so, so, so there is one pretty well publicised case in the UK where the regulator looked as if it might take action against the bank um, and the bank burned the employee and the employee um, fought back and succeeded um, and the bank was criticised. I can't remember now whether this was tribunal or court, but but, but very firmly criticised for burning the employee to protect itself against what it thought the regulator might do. Um, and, and that must have been very brand damaging for that bank. Um, very, very clear in the in the in the judgment. So this is what the court thought had happened. Mm. It's a, uh, uh, thank, th thank you. The great question here from Deirdre Canavan. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one. Does anyone feel that SEER IAF will in time act as a disincentive for young dynamic professionals to want to move up the career ladder and become senior executives? CCOs, CROs, and financial services companies. So, yeah, you know, this is a a, a a concern of mine, um, that this could that that the regime, if it's not implemented in a sensitive and proportionate way, could reduce the available talent pool um, for financial service providers, which is already, as we all know, uh, on the call tight. Um, I, I, can we maybe uh, first of all, I think again, Chris. And I keep calling on you for the UK. What have you seen in the UK on this? And then uh, maybe Davina and Sarah. Um, so we've we've had a number of rule changes um, over the last twenty years, where the market has very often said, "That's madness, don't do it." We'll find it very difficult to recruit and retain. Um, and actually, that's that's not what's happened in practice. It, 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 with each layer, a small number of people have left, but they've. My my perception is that it's tended to be people who were getting towards the end of their career and just said, enough is enough. I don't want this extra responsibility. I'll go now. Um, but that aside, it's it's not had the impact that the, the markets feared it would have. Okay. Yeah, and you know, we, we have an amazing pool of talent in, in Ireland. I feel that if people grow up through an organization with this regime, it's exactly as Chris says, maybe, you know, that might be a nail in the coffin for somebody right at the end of their career where they don't want to have to adapt to setting out their statement of responsibilities and adding a load of new conduct standards, which in fact they are probably doing already. Um, they just don't want to face in to the reality of setting it all out. I don't think that that, that will happen. I, I, I do really believe that talent growing through an organization gets used to whatever the new regime is. And, you know, it's all about just trying to use it to, to bring value to the framework, I think. Sarah, do you want to comment? Yeah, I suppose it's more of an observation as maybe my thinking was a bit wrong, because I think when I was looking at you know, the topic we were going to be discussing and how it initially panned out with the S, you know, in the UK. And I think there'd been a statement by the FCA that 
the intention wasn't that you know the regi- regime was necessarily going to or meant to impact how firms did business and the types of hires that they made. I was maybe a little bit cynical, uh, given what Chris has just said there. I just thought maybe that was a bit naive. And certainly if that was going to be the, the thinking that was adopted in Ireland, um, I, I would have thought, you know, it's inevitable that, you know, firms are going to have to adapt anyway. Like Davina said, they're going to have it in at grassroots and it's just going to be the norm going forward. And maybe that's the point, you know, it's going to be the norm and people will be comfortable. I suppose for it to be introduced at the outset, I would have thought it would have an impact on individuals considering putting themselves forward. But I think there is comfort obviously to be taken from the UK perspective and how it's actually panned out in reality. Sure. Last, very last word to you, because um, we're nearly up against time. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, they're usually, these positions are probably very well remunerated. So remuneration does, uh, it's, it's, it's a decisive factor. So I would assume it's interesting why people haven't asked for the bounty money by moving in the market as a very good, clean, we're going to start using the term clean employee, maybe a, a regulatory clean employee, perhaps compliance regulatory that have, have achieved quite quite significant pay rises in the coming in the last few years, they're going to be in hot, hot demand. So I'd say um, the market always regulates itself after a while in terms of uh, positions. Well, look, I'd like to, to, we're pretty much up against time now and, and we're going to finish within the hour. I'd like to say thank you very much indeed, Chris uh, and Davina, our guest speakers. It's been fantastic. Thanks to my partner colleagues, Sarah, Peter and Ger. And thanks to all of you. Um, if there are further questions uh, that, that, oh, um, sorry, but, uh, uh, I've just been reminded we need to do the results of our poll. Uh, so I have the results of our poll here. Uh, and, and how concerned are you? Uh, we asked you all about reduced personal career prospects because of IAF SEER. Um, so 5% of you were extremely concerned, 11% very concerned, 34% of you concerned, and 50% of you almost not concerned at all. Um, so that's, that's, that's good news. Um, do you think it's likely your firm will experience future talent shortages? Um, only 8% thought it was extremely likely. Uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Sinead, can we get the next, uh, can we get the next part of it? Uh, I think I've closed that down improperly there. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, extremely likely, very likely, uh, 11%, likely 46%. So 46% of you, nearly half, are concerned about future talent shortages. How worried are you about personal exposure to liability? Quite a lot of you worried. Uh, 34%, 14% very worried since 48, so 57% of you uh, worried and only 43% not worried. Um, and then, our, and we have 64% uh, legal and compliance personnel answering. So maybe that may explain uh, the worrying because as we all know, lawyers are chronic warriors. So thank you very much uh, to all of you, to the panelists, uh, to our guest speakers, and to all of you for attending. And we look forward to seeing you at the next of these webinars. Bye-bye.